be reading out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And it is on page 895 in this blue Bible. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kathy. You may be seated. Welcome again to Bayless. If you are just now joining us in service, uh, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here. And during this worship service, a special worship service, I want to say again, a special welcome to the kiddos. First of all, so I'm going to say Merry Christmas. I did this at Christmas Eve. I'd love the kiddos to respond back with Merry Christmas as loud as you can. So one, two, three. Merry Christmas. I heard a great response from, I think, the front row here. But let's try this one more time. One, two, three. That's so great. Wonderful. Kiddos, we're glad that you're here. So we, uh, this is a special Sunday for us where we get to, uh, uh, we we're giving a um, chance for our Bayless Kids Serve Team to have the week off to be with us in service. But like every Sunday here at Bayless, we love having kids here. So kiddos, you are so welcome. I am your pastor. I love being your pastor too. I love that you are a part of our church. We need you, we love you, and we're glad that you're here today. And so we, uh, um, I want to say too, if you are new to Bayless, please do make sure that you fill out one of those cards. That is the best way to get to connect with somebody here at Bayless, um, and we will follow up with you this week. We're going to have a bit of a shorter service today, um, but we will have, I will stick around as, long, as well as other leaders today to connect with you, find out what your questions are. And again, please don't leave without uh, connecting with someone. We uh, are glad that you would be here on a Sunday morning like this one, especially December 26th, day after Christmas. We also, uh, my wife um, made these wonderful little Christmas ornaments, and those are, uh, you can take those for free, okay? So we'll, we'll waive the fee this morning. I'm just kidding. So please do grab one of these on your way out. We would love to, again, as a reminder of what God has done this year and even more so as we pray we see God continue to do even more um, than we could ask or imagine um, in the coming years take this and so that it reminds you of the sweet year we really have had this year when you take it out for your tree next year um, but um, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 and today we uh, you might notice we normally on a Sunday morning if you've been here for some time we've been in Mark's gospel uh, a different 
uh, book about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about who he was and what he did. Well, today we're going to look at who he was and what he did, but we're going to do so by shifting not only to a different book of the Bible, but actually backing way up. We're actually shifting from what we're, where we were in Mark's gospel towards the end of Jesus' life in the final week. Uh, we actually ended off with the triumphal entry last week to now looking at the very beginning of his life, looking at specifically his adoptive father, Joseph. Um, and I want to today, the reason we want to do so is not just because of Christmas, but I think we have uh, an excuse this time of year actually to say that Jesus's life was actually one con cohesive story. It's not, um, and many, uh, I think of, um, well, anyways, I won't use that illustration, but many look at Jesus as uh, uh, they have favorite uh, vignettes or favorite portions of his life, things that they really connect with, and, and uh, like um, some connect with his miracles, or some connect with his teaching, and some connect with his birth. Um, but we have to actually see that Jesus' Jesus's story from beginning to end is all about one thing, and it's about what the angel is promising to Joseph, which, which we're going to look at even now, how his birth is actually connected directly to his death, and I think we're going to see so today, but I hope you will keep your Bibles open. Um, but before we look at this, I want to ask you if you would uh, to, if this is even possible, to forget what you know about shepherds and angels and magi. Not because I'm going to change any of what you know about that, but because I want us to think instead about an event that comes much earlier, about nine months earlier to the events that took place that Christmas morning we remember. I want you to picture specifically a young man those nine months earlier who is months, perhaps even weeks, away from getting married. Uh, to another young girl in town, we don't know how well that Joseph would have even known Mary having had this marriage arranged for some time. But you can imagine the anticipation and excitement that any young man would be feeling, let alone the entire town as caterers are scheduled, as the, uh, as the party is planned, as the final celebration, the end of this long engagement and the beginning of a long marriage is a, just around the corner. Can you imagine what is going through this young man's mind, now ready for his life very much to change? But I want you to picture this anxious young man that all of a sudden finds out very unexpectedly that the bottom has fallen out of his life, that his future is going to look much different than he ever had expected. Something has happened to him that he did not ask for. His fiancée was pregnant. And the child, he knows, is not his. We can sometimes get removed enough from these events that we don't think long about the characters, identify with them, and how normal they are, how how full of the same anxieties and fears and apprehensions they would be, like us. I want you to picture Joseph, again, who has just had his world end. Some of us might think, well, I mean, at least this happened while they were engaged. At least he finds out beforehand that he cannot trust his bride-to-be. He really dodged a bullet there. But that actually was not the case in the first century. In the first century... You see, engagement was a very serious thing, as serious as marriage itself. It was as legally binding as the ceremony which would have taken place. So much so, so you could say that the marriage, the moment the, uh, the uh, engagement was 
put into effect in front of witnesses. The marriage was a done deal. Now the party just needed to be planned. And so being cheated on, as Joseph suspects that he has been, would not have only been, would have been not only um, very hurtful, it would have been very, very public. Everyone would have known. In fact, as everyone had been looking forward to this marriage ceremony in a small town like Nazareth, you have to imagine what it was going to now look like for this engagement to be broken off. But in Jewish law, Jewish practice, engagement could only be broken off the same way a marriage would, with a very messy and a very public divorce. Did you notice this in the passage when it says that Joseph planned on divorcing his wife? This is exactly what it means. Usually this divorce would have been accompanied, especially in the case of adultery like this, with a very public trial, trying to establish guilt. And a just man would have done exactly that, gone to trial, put his bride-to-be up for trial, to make it public, at least that his innocence was uh, not up for question, to save his own face and reputation. Perhaps he could even get married again. And even though... Matthew tells us that Joseph was more compassionate than that, resolving instead to handle it quietly. Can you imagine his embarrassment? Can you imagine, perhaps how many of you grew up in a small town? You know that people whisper and sneer over far more trivial things. Can you imagine, though, not just his embarrassment, but his anger and shame? After all, If we are to believe Luke as well, to bring these together, Mary would not have felt like her world was ending. She would have been excited in bringing the news to Joseph. She seemed to think that this was all from the Lord, whatever that meant. Can you imagine his anger? I want you to picture that young, ashamed, and probably angry man then going to bed, dreading the next day's decision, what he knows he must do certain of only one thing he could not marry mary friends i don't know what's going on in your life but i i suspect some of us can relate you might have moments like this now i don't mean that you just received news that your girlfriend was pregnant with the christ child but if that's you we should probably talk after service what i mean is that some of us have received bad news even perhaps this year some of us are upset that our lives haven't turned out the way that we thought. We're upset about the deck we seem to have been dealt. Some of us, even at Christmas, or especially at Christmas, are feeling lonely, a bit skeptical, a bit hurt and hesitant, maybe bitter and afraid, or ashamed and angry even at God. But then, in this passage, something unexpected comes to this young man. News that His bad news isn't as bad as he thinks, but even more than that, it is good news, in fact, for the entire world. News in the middle of a night that is delivered to him in a dream, sent from the throne of heaven itself, Joseph, do not fear. Now, we have to say, the angel says and leads with do not fear, because that is exactly what he is experiencing, is great fear. That's not all that surprising, but what perhaps is surprising is what the angel is saying, do not 
fear. Why? Why in the world would this young man who has literally had his future upended have no reason now to fear? Is it because his life is going to turn out to be less difficult than he has imagined? Is it because somehow in taking Mary to be his wife, a woman who would then be commonly treated as an adulteress, or in taking her child, who many would at least expect was the product of an illegitimate affair? Is it because his life would be easy, pleasant, or simple? No. Is that the reason why Joseph himself should not be afraid? It's not likely. No, in fact, the reason he should not fear has very little to do with Joseph's own circumstances than of what the child, now growing in his bride-to-be's belly, her womb, what that child would mean, what that child would do. In fact, I want to look at those two things, who this child would be and what this child would do before we close our time this morning. Now, it's common to, though, to, uh, before we, again, I'm just shifting gears from the events themselves, fast forward for a moment to Jesus himself. It's common to again, have a variety of opinions about Jesus today and have favorite moments from Jesus' life, even among those who would uh, not consider him to be Savior and Lord, even in secular culture. He's popularly quoted. They would, many look at Jesus as simply a good teacher, a picture of what it is like to live an honorable, meaningful life. And many look at Christmas as perhaps that's the symbolism here in the Christ child, is thinking about what he did with his life. Perhaps it's a reminder of what we could do and even a longing a hope from what we could do from our own lives in the coming year many dismiss christmas as simply a hoping for the best in some ways i don't actually want to just diminish some of that sense in fact i think it's essential for us to understand that jesus is no less than the fullest picture of what a human being should be what they ought to be not But he is not just the standard that everyone will be measured by, but a picture of what God is, in fact, restoring in his human creatures. But the Bible describes Jesus' life, Jesus himself, his person, as unique, as set apart for an even more fundamental reason than he shows us what human beings were meant for. And it is represented in a detail that many, I just have to tell you, especially at Christmas, have a hard time accepting as much as it's part of our manger scenes. Jesus's virgin birth. In fact, there are many religious people today who are comfortable with placing this detail in the category, the same category as Santa and his reindeer in a box of antiquated Christmas legends, stuff for kids, but not for modern thinking adults. Again, I've seen many, not just secular people, but religious people sneer at the virgin birth be very uncomfortable with it. And I don't actually mean to dismiss its strangeness. Friends, if anything, the virgin birth is strange, supernatural, miraculous. It would, uh, again, um, this is an abnormal, the definition of an abnormal event. And Christians, Christians don't need to pretend as if it is anything other than difficult to believe. But I want 
us to recognize not only that it is difficult to believe, but actually essential to the very fabric of Christianity for a couple reasons. And so those many who treat as if we could take Jesus' life in piecemeal and cut it up, slice and dice, and maybe just get rid of the stuff like the virgin birth and then the resurrection, why removing those things causes the whole thing to crumble? First, according to historian and scholar J. Gresham Macon, who did a long and extensive history of Christianity and its teaching of church history, it's impossible to dismiss the virgin birth as a later addition, as something that was added after the fact, that perhaps, um, like with many legends, grows more legendary, more miraculous. Perhaps Jesus wasn't significant enough, and so they added a virgin birth on it to make him more significant. No, again, this has been regarded not only as a part of Christian belief from the very beginning, but essential to Christian belief from the very beginning. You look at the earliest Christian creeds, and you look at the earliest Christian teachings, and one of the first things that they speak of is Jesus's virgin birth, integral to the Christians, to Christianity's body of thought. At least many Christians for thousands of years have thought so. In all parts of the known world, since at least the close of the second century A.D. Again, if Christians have seen this as integral for thousands of years to the body of Christian thought, it's perhaps a little arrogant to say that we've grown up today and left it behind us. If it's true, again, that it has been integral to Christianity, you can't assume that you can simply remove that one Jenga block from the tower without the whole thing becoming destabilized and crumbling. But second, this actually, to dismiss the virgin birth, fails to recognize why the virgin birth matters. And theologians have wrestled over this, why it has been so integral to Christian faith since the beginning. Specifically, because it helps us to ground an assumption that is critical to the rest of the New Testament. Again, to the uniqueness of Jesus' life. And that is more than just he showed us what human potential is, or at least what God is remaking and freeing us from sin. No, the virgin birth shows us that Jesus is, even as he is like us, he is very much unlike us. That Jesus is not simply fully human, though being born of a human, he is certainly not less than that. We must assert that strangeness in the birth of Christ, that Jesus is fully human, even a babe who would have been, yes, crying in the dark, Yes, would have soiled his own pants, would have relied on his mother's breast milk to feed him. He is fully man. But in the virgin birth, we learn that Jesus is something else. He is very unlike us in that he is even divine. Fully man and fully God. Not divine in the sense that even the Greeks and Romans would have spoken of as Caesar or the demigods like Hercules, the product of God impregnating a human, as strange and weird as that is, the soap operas of these ancient fictions. No, Matthew actually steers very clear of this, claiming something that was unprecedented in Greco-Roman and Jewish thought, something no one ever had claimed. He, along with Luke, another gospel writer, claims that Jesus was conceived miraculously not by two, but by one parent, by the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. I realize some of us may dismiss the whole thing as implausible, as impossible. 
And again, it is strange and miraculous. But friends, let me ask you, if you grant the premise of a creator God, a God who makes all things, who came up with physics, who decide how children would be born and conceived, it is not so stretch, too, too much of a stretch of an imagination to say that the God who wrote the laws of the universe can do what he pleases. This God who created all things, including galaxies, including mitochondria, is it too much of a stretch to say that he would create again in a virgin's womb? In other words, this child would be no less than fully man, but would be, in fact, fully God. His name would not only mean God with us, as the passage points out, and as we reflected on Christmas Eve, that name, Emmanuel, which was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before this child would be born. It would not only mean God with us, he would be God with us, drawing near to us, God coming to us, un, I mean, without our um, contributing to it or expecting it or having twisted his arm, God himself drawing near to us in the most intimate display as he becomes, sends his son to be one of us, to be with us, to draw near us in the most concrete way possible. Let me put this differently. Um, at Christmas time, it's common to find certain words plastered on coffee mugs or in window displays, perhaps on an ugly Christmas sweater. Words like peace and joy and love and hope or faith. These longings, you see, they touch on the deepest longings that we all have. The things we most want to be true from our lives. We've spent our lives searching for and hope we get a glimpse of. It's one of the things that is bound up with Christmas and always has been. But we talk about these things, about joy and peace and love and hope, as if they could be ours if we simply thought positive thoughts or hoped for the best or tried maybe just a bit harder than we did last year. The Bible knows, though, that this could never be the case and that these realities, as much as we were designed to long for them, would always be outside of our reach, something we could not find. In fact, left to ourselves, we would find ourselves drifting from them even further than when we first began. The Bible doesn't, though, give up the fact that hope could be found, nonetheless. It just gives up on the hope that we would find hope on our own. Instead, and this is the great news of the gospel, the great news of Christmas, hope would come to us uh, without our prompting, without our deserving, without our contributing to any of it. Hope, joy, peace, and love that we are all longing for comes by the initiative of God himself, by the power of God himself. Indeed, those things, peace, love, joy, and hope, were all born to us, you could say, in that baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in the manger. But this still begs another question of why be born at all? Why come to us? Sure, it shows God's love and his initiative, his desire to draw near, but couldn't God do all of that in a much less strange way? Didn't, why did he need to come to us as something as ordinary and as vulnerable as a cooing baby. 
And this leads us to the second part of the angel's good news, what he would do. Not only would he be Emmanuel, 21, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, I want to consider the second name that Jesus goes by and what he is most well known for. The name Yeshua in Hebrew, or Jesus, as it's rendered in English. Or I should say, I think Yeshua is the, the Aramaic, um, meaning Joshua. Or it's similar to Joshua, I should say. Now, Grace, though, um, before we look at this name, I, I want you to know that, I mean, we, so we have four kids, and before these kids were born, we went back and forth over what to name our kids. Um, did you, if you have kids, did you debate about it? Was it often a disagreement? Sometimes a really touchy subject. There's few things uh, that uh, bring up all the people you don't like, uh, like naming a baby. And naming a baby, we wanted to, with our kids, uh, have those names be significant. And so we wanted to have them not just sound the right way, but to have rich meaning, some hopes we hope for their kids. And we see this all throughout the Bible. But it turns out this baby's name, as significant as it is, and it has meaning within it, Joseph isn't the one who coined it. And Mary didn't either. It wasn't Joseph's idea. It wasn't Mary's idea. In fact, it was God's own idea. And as much as it might surprise us, it turns out that this name was actually not that unique. Jesus would not have been the only Jesus walking around. The very fact that he was called Jesus of Nazareth is because people would have been asking, wait, which Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. As Greek, the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua, according to commentator R.T. France, Yeshua was among the commonest Jewish names in the first century. And so it needed to have the clarification, again, Jesus of Nazareth. And perhaps the reason it was so common among the first century, why it was as popular as perhaps John is today, it means something like the Lord saves. And you can picture Jewish families around Israel suffering in exile, aware of the brokenness of their lives and of their world, naming their child this name because in this name, the Lord saves. They are, in fact, crying out in their desperation, in their darkness and loneliness, Lord, would you? Would you even save now? As a bit of a hope of what God might even bring, not surely, though, in their life, maybe in generations to come. You can picture these families all hoping that this might be true, that the Lord does indeed save, even though their circumstances communicated the opposite. The Lord might save even today. But the angel doesn't just say that the child would remind them that God saves. Rather, it would be through this Yeshua that God would save. And he would save from an enemy that was more ruthless than the Romans, more ugly than cancer, more powerful than death. He would save from the enemy behind all other enemies, sin itself. As strange as it might be for us to comprehend this again and as ugly as it might be for some of us we cannot make sense of Jesus purely by his teaching it's not even the most important feature of his life his mission from birth to death is all about correcting ending overcoming an enemy we had an enemy we have spent our whole lives avoiding sin which is a slave master that unfortunately we all love a 
slave master we must be freed from, who must be undone, who must be conquered and ended, for only then would death itself fade into memory. I realize, again, it might surprise us, but the main purpose of Jesus' life was not his teachings or his miracles. The reason God the Father chose to send God the Son to be born as a human baby, remember, breathing the very air that he himself made, to experience what it meant to be cold, sick, and tired, to be brokenhearted and betrayed. The reason he sent his son to be born as that human body who would share our human experience is so that he might save us, whose nature he now shares, body and soul. And so, to save us in body and soul, I should say. And so, in a very real sense, this baby was born to die. The manger leads directly to the cross. The purpose God came to us was so that he would be with us. And the only way that he would be with us is through this path and this alone. Now, thinking back to Joseph, you might think that nothing has changed about his circumstances. The angel's good news doesn't change Joseph's, again, circumstances in the slightest. Joseph and Mary would probably have carried a certain kind of reputation for the rest of their lives, not to mention Mary's firstborn, Jesus, Yeshua, the son, every neighbor would have whispered about. It's no coincidence that he is often dismissed later in his ministry when he comes back home. You have to wonder how even his siblings would have seen him. Do you think they believed that his parents really did see angels? That their brother was the product of God's miraculous intervention? Now we find out even his Brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. And yet, at least in Joseph's estimation, everything has changed. In fact, taking the angel at his word, we find out that Joseph not only raises and takes Mary to be his wife, but takes her son to be his son. In fact, the great tension of Matthew's gospel is how is it that Jesus could be the son of David? And one of the ways he is legally recognized as the son of David as being adopted by one who is a son of David himself, Joseph. And taking the son as his son, a son, a son of David, taking the son of David into his family as his own, knowing now there was no going back that his challenges, that Mary's challenges, that Jesus' challenges would be his own. What could prompt such courage, such an act of faith? Only... A hope that was more stable and certain than his own circumstances. What Joseph found is exactly that in the child in the womb of his bride now to be. The child he thought had ended his world, in fact, had come to save it. Friends, this is the message of Christmas. Not simply good news of hope, peace, joy, and love, that they could be ours, but that hope, peace, joy, and love through the one called Jesus. The Lord saves. The one who would save his people even from their sins. Some of you, again, here, Count yourself among those who have been reconciled, ransomed, and redeemed, as we even looked in Isaiah. But many of us wonder if this could even 
include us, if we're honest, even those who are Christians here, wrestle with our own assurance. Wondering if it's true still for me. Can God save? Yeah, I understand in theory, but from in this circumstance, even when I continue to mess up, even when I continue to do that, say that, continue to be that kind of person, can God save even me? Again, I don't know who... I don't know the things that you've kept secret. I, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what doubts you carry. But this includes you, friend, if your faith is in Christ. Not yourself, but in a God who saves the broken, the bitter, the afraid, the skeptical, just like Joseph. Consider Joseph, again, ashamed, angry, and afraid. Take comfort that God sees us and takes us as we are. But more than that, consider the babe that even Joseph hoped in, the one who was born fully God and fully man, who not only laid aside glory and did so for you, he gave it up to give up his life eventually for you. Consider the one born to die that you might live what has caused christians even when the depression persists and the anxiety overwhelms even when it comes with more losses in the coming years than you thought you had around the corner even when it comes with bad news even when the circumstances don't change what allows them to hope even in the midst of tears is jesus the one who has saved and will save and will deliver us over safe to God to be with us forever, soon enough. Again, I don't know why God has brought you here today, but it could be this, to embrace again your Redeemer and your King, your hope, the one who will always be your Lord and Savior. This is the message we will never stop preaching as a church, we must never as Christians. It is how we change, it's how we transform, it's how we answer back to the dark. To find in Jesus the complete forgiveness of our sins, the greatest work already done. To know the end of his life was not in a manger, but on a cross, and then with an empty tomb. To know him is to know life. To, him, to know him is to know joy. And it comes from being his own. In fact, hear these lyrics again, as I often do, I just love reading these lyrics from these old hymns or carols from Hark the Herald, which we just sang. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. We sing it even today. Lord, we come to you as those who, again, this day after Christmas, don't want to leave the hope of Christmas behind us. We never want to, it, the sweetness of it to be fresh in our imagination, and we need it today. We've been looking for hope in plenty of places, left, again, the hope of the cross, the hope of, the, the, of God with us, behind us as if it was something old and trivial, something to be moved on from. If 
that's us, will we dust it off once again and see the precious gift that will always be an ever more beautiful gift to us. So we might endure, we might hope, and even more so, we might extend this good news of hope, joy, peace, and love to those who are as desperate as we are for it, telling them that it has come, and it has come in Christ. It has come to the one who is God with us, has come to the one who is known as the Lord saves, and indeed you have. And it's for Jesus' sake that we pray that our church might be more about him